That made me start sweating. I got to wipe off for a minute. That's good. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much. Wow. I love it. I've never heard that before. And uh, what a blessing. Thank you to all of those who were uh, leading us there so beautifully. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3, we start a brand new five-part series today. I don't do this very often, and I won't be hopping all over the Bible, though I have a lot of cross-references. We'll be staying in Romans chapter 3 for the next five weeks, leading up into a mini-series for Christmas. So we're going to be talking about uh, the concept divine plumb line. And let me tell you why I use that terminology. I could have chosen a big biblical word like righteousness or other things, but a lot of times those of us that are Christians, you hear those words and you say, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. I know what righteousness is. But, and we'll talk about that a lot in the text. But um, there are a lot of folks out there that aren't Christians yet, and they don't understand these concepts. My, my papa was a master carpenter, my dad's dad. And so I used to love to build things with him, and he would engineer things and school projects. And I kept rabbits some when I was a boy, and so uh, building cages or rabbit gums to catch. Uh, um, so this is something that a, a carpenter would use, and even to this day, that's very common. This is a plumb line, okay, the orange. Notice I got orange, ball fans, praise God. Hello? orange. Uh, so I wanted that to stand out, and that was good, beating Kentucky. And then uh, my Carolina boys, if anybody saw that whooping, they put on the Demon Deacons, who up until yesterday were undefeated. So we busted some heads in Jesus' name to the glory of God. That was great. But this orange uh, line is called the plumb line. This is all actually called the plumb bob. This is an eight-ounce plumb bob. They can be a little heavier than that. But that weight is to simply do one thing, right? And that is to give me a true vertical. And any of you that have ever worked on an older home whose walls are not plumb, you know how frustrating it can be. You're trying to cut things and fit things or flooring and joints that aren't plumb or cut to perfect 90 degrees. And so what this does is it gives me a proper vertical, Wherever I hang this, so long as it's not just swinging, right? We're not trying to do some kind of hypnosis here. Look at the plumb bob. No, that's not what we want. But when it's not swinging, when it's straight up and down, and it's just not moving, you'll find that that is always going to show your true vertical. And so you want your walls to be straight. Well, the Bible says that there is a true vertical, a divine plumb line for us. And it's not one another. In fact, if we measure ourselves by one another, at times we'll get prideful and other times we'll get frustrated. And so our standard, our divine plumb line is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, the living word, and the Bible, the written word of God. These are the things that help us know we are in alignment. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what many theologians have termed the heart of the Bible. Romans 3, the heart of the Bible. In fact, this is not going to be, today in particular, a super easy deal. This would be one of those texts that a lot of times will get pushed aside and preachers aren't going to talk about because it's a very strong statement on sin. And so to get us started, I hate to take that last song out, but let me give you a little earworm. The great old theologian Waylon Jennings wrote a song called Good Old Boys. Does anybody remember what that was the theme song to? Dukes of Hazard. Y'all remember what he said? Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you ever saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Y'all remember that? Anybody remember Bo and Luke Duke? Some of you men, you remember Daisy? No, I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand to that. Don't, remember, don't do that. Boss Hogg. 
Roscoe Pico trying Cooter and the gang is one of those funny character shows. I know, I know, I know. Generally, it's gotten in trouble and people get all out of sorts about things. I'm not showing those images, but Jennings said, these boys straightening the curves, flattening the hills. Someday the mountain might get them, but the law never will. Making their way the only way they know how. That's just a little bit more than the law will allow. Just a good old boy wouldn't change if they could. Fighting the system like a true modern-day Robin Hood. And so there was all these antics of the boys outrunning the law and doing things. And, you know, we look around, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that kind of in a general concept. Oh, I love old Fred. He's just a good old boy. But there's a problem when we put that on people as to their standing with God. So we say, well, old Fred there, he, he never really has been to church, and he's not much on religion, and he doesn't read his Bible, but, but he's a good old boy. And because he's a good old boy, surely he's going to be all right. Besides, it's none of my business. Well, no, listen, if you study the first few chapters of this book called Romans, the picture that Paul paints of all of us in the human race is not a pretty sight. Now, the good news is he's almost done talking about sin. The bad news is what we look at today in the verses we're going to study may be perhaps the strongest statement on sin to be found anywhere in all of the Bible. And I believe one of the reasons the Lord led me back to this text, it had been a long time since I'd been in this text, several years, and I'd never approached it here at Grace I think he led me back because I'm afraid we're living in a world of I'm okay, you're okay, and you just let me do my thing, and you just do your thing, and yet the Bible doesn't paint the picture that way. This vivid description of human depravity before us is going to make us want to turn away. I don't want to listen to that. I didn't come to church for that. I didn't come to be beaten up on. Number one, I'm not going to beat up on you. I'm going to let the Word of God be the Word of God and the Spirit of God be the Spirit of God. And I'll try to keep it a little light as we go because this is a very, very heavy subject. We cannot and we will not turn away because the gospel is only good news when we first understand the bad news. Grace is only amazing to those who recognize their sinfulness in light of God's holiness. That's what God's showing us. Yesterday, if that had been Alabama-Kentucky in a close game, would Nick Saban have been happy or mad? Well, mad. He would have thrown a little hissy fit because he throws them a lot. Even if he wins, if he doesn't win by enough, he gets upset. Why? Because he is a national championship coach with a national championship winning team. So his expectation is very, very high. But for Tennessee fans who have struggled, right, for a while, a few years or decades, a, few, a while, to find victory... And to play aggressively and quickly and to continue, I don't know how this is possible, we, we continue to make our opponents cramp a lot. Have y'all noticed that? They keep cramping on us. That hurry up offense is incredible to watch. It's a lot of fun. But uh, for those who have had some bad news leading up, the good news is that much sweeter, right? And when we whoop George's backside this coming weekend, it's really going to be amazing. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> But seriously, if, it, if that did happen, for instance, what headlines that would be? It was like my Carolina Tar Heels whooping up on the undefeated Wake Forest Demon Deacons. That's a pretty big deal for a Carolina fan. But he, the reality is, Paul is opening this thing up and he's saying in the beginning of chapter 1, the whole earth is under God's wrath. 
He says in the second half of chapter one, the Gentiles are guilty. If you are not a Jew by ethnicity or religious choice today, you're a Gentile. You're Gentile. I would say most, if not all of us, are Gentiles. Or sometimes the Bible uses the word Greek. The moralists are guilty. He tells us in the first half of chapter 2, even if you have tried your best to keep all of the law, you're still guilty. He tells us in the second half of chapter 2, the Jews are guilty. So not only were the Greeks guilty, the Jews are guilty too. Even God's chosen people need Jesus as their Lord and their Savior because Jesus alone is the divine plumb line. And then he says in the first eight verses of chapter 3, no excuses will be accepted. You can't stand before, the, before God and stutter one day and he says, well, it's okay, come on in. Doesn't work that way. No excuses are accepted. So picking up with verse 9, let's see what the Lord has to say to us about sin and how we stand. Would you join me by standing as we honor the reading of God's word? Chapter 3, verse 9, book of Romans, Paul says, what then? Because everybody's under this wrath, everybody's sinful. Are we Jews better than they, Gentiles or Greeks? Not at all. For we've previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside and have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit, and the poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they've not known. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are harsh words and a lot of popular preaching, if you will, that we hear today really has no hint of these harsh words. Even some of America's most popular preachers say they steer clear of these controversial texts for fear of offense. But Father, there's nothing controversial about this in your heart. You're simply painting the accurate picture that all of us sin and we are separated in our sin from you, our holy God. We're not going to understand the good news until we walk through this deep well of the bad news and realize that though this valley is deep and dark, there's a light on the other side. His name is Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So uh, I want to give you a better biblical understanding of who we really are today before a holy God, okay? And the notes are pretty extensive, but we'll, we'll roll through them very quickly. First truth I want you to see is this. According to the Bible, there are no good old boys, okay? I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Jennings, uh, Waylon, there's no good old boys, according to the Bible. That's why asking this type of question is called the problem of evil. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's a false question because it's based on a false premise. It's a faulty line of thinking because you've got to understand goodness as God defines goodness. And according to the Bible, there are no good old boys. So Paul is basically restating the charge he's been making in the first two and a half to three and a half chapters of Romans from all the way into chapter three, verse eight. Let's look at verse nine. He says, what then? Are we better? We Jews? Are we Jews better than them, those non-Jews, those Greeks? Well, not at all. I've already told you. 
that both Jews and Greeks are under the law because they're all under sin. So whether Jew or Gentile, moral, immoral, religious, irreligious, everybody's under sin. No group is better, nor is any group guiltier than any other. Think about it. No church is better. Grace Baptist Church isn't better than Ebenezer Baptist, or Baptists aren't better than Methodists, or better than Presbyterians. And when we think about it, this keeps moving. Tennessee versus North Carolina or Florida. I know, I know, we can argue about ball teams, but I'm saying state to state, nation to nation, the United States of America uh, has sin issues, so does China and, and Russia and, and North Korea and South Korea. And, and we can say, you know, look, even people, even people, you can put Mother Teresa on a pedestal, but according to the Bible, Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler are both guilty sinners before a holy God. You say, no, that can't be true. Well, it's what the Bible says. Paul is making the charge. It's a legal term here. It's what he says in verse 9. I'm charging both Jews and Greeks, everybody. We're under sin. It's a military term. We're under the authority of someone or something else. Because of our first family, Adam and Eve, we have all been born in sin. And the idea is repeated here in Galatians 3.10 that says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. We are under a curse. Paul uses the word sin 48 times in Romans, not in the plural, He's not saying sins, oh, you committed this or committed that. He's referring to the singular condition of sin. We've blown it and we're busted. We sin because by nature we're born sinners. You don't have to teach your children how to be a sinner. Many years ago, G.K. Chesterton sent a letter to the editor of a local newspaper in response to the question, what's wrong with the world today? He said, dear sir, I am. The shortest letter they received and yet the most profound because Chesterton had been reading Romans 3. And you may look around and you say, well, he's a good old boy or she's a fine gal. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm not that bad, pastor. I know you say all of this and the Bible says all this, but I'm just not that bad. Well, who's your standard? Because you can always find somebody worse than you. Morally, you can always find somebody worse than you. But I guarantee when you look hard enough, you'll find somebody better than you. And you'll be frustrated. And God doesn't want you to be frustrated. God wants you to know that you know that you know that you're his child. And I want you to understand you are comparing yourself the wrong way. A plumb line goes from north to south. A divine plumb line goes from God to me, not east-west. I don't compare myself with you, nor should you compare yourself with me. If you do that, there'll be times you'll think you'll be better, and there'll be times you'll think you'll be worse. That's the wrong way to look at this thing. Paul drives home this conviction that comes from Scripture itself, and he says, look, I'm not making this stuff up. As it is written. He says that on 16 different times through the book of Romans, as it is written. I'm not just telling you that we're all in a world of hurt and we're all in a problematic uh, case of sin. I love this present tense. Not as it was written, as it is written. This word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And most of what Paul's getting ready to quote here, because in your Bible it's probably in italics in that section, 10 and following, most of this comes from the Psalms. Some of it comes, just a little smidgen of it, uh, comes from two other places. It comes from Ecclesiastes, one section, and one from Isaiah. It's almost like this. Paul's looking at people 
in general. Yes, specifically the Christians in and around Rome. But he's looking to all of us and he's saying, look, I can go back to Hebrews, to the Hebrews songbook. They're hymn, they're hymn, if you will. They're hymn book. And I can prove to you from those songs that all of us stand guilty before God. All of us have a sin problem. And so he says, uh, look at your condition. And I'm going to break it down for you on your notes. But before we do that, let's just reread 10, 11, and 12 and focus on these words. None, no, not one, and all. Puts us in the same boat, okay? Focus on those words. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I haven't heard a lot of preachers speaking about that one lately. None. No, not one. All are sinners. We, of course, know that very famous verse later in the chapter, which we'll study in a few weeks, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're just not in good shape, right? Let's go ABC. Let's fill them out. Ready? No one is righteous. That's the first thing he's teaching us. No one is righteous. That's what he says in verse 10. God judges according to his own sinless perfection, and compared with that, all of us fall. No, not one. Now, listen. I understand, relatively speaking, some seem more righteous and some seem less righteous. But when held to God's holy, perfect standard, all are sinners. Now listen to this statement. Not all are equally sinful, but all are equally sinners. That's why I said Mother Teresa needs Jesus, needed Jesus. Adolf Hitler needed Jesus. They're not equally sinful, but equally sinners because God is the only standard. No one understands. That's B. No one understands. We can learn some things about God, but no one can understand it all. That's what verse 11 says. There's none who understands. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Ephesians 4.18 says we're darkened in our understanding. We're separated from the life of God because of ignorance. You know, I have read this Bible 23, this year 23 times in a row, cover to cover. Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, the entire thing. Each of those years a different way. Study Bibles, Greek, Hebrew, chronological, different form and fashion. We just developed a new Bible calendar for you guys and for me this coming year that I hope you'll take the journey. But I've read it over and over and over. I was in seminary a long time. And it reminds me how stupid I am and how much I don't know. Because I come to it and I think, how did I never, how did I never see that before? How did I miss that? Or I know the truth, but I don't act on the truth. That's even dumber, isn't it? And so I think it reminds us no one fully understands God, and we're not gonna understand him until we see him face to face. Why do you want a God so small? You can figure out what a dinky little God that would be. Let's have a big God that no one can unpack this side of heaven. No one seeks God, that's letter C. No one seeks God. I know there was a seeker-sensitive movement in this country. Most of the leaders of that movement, decades later, decried its problems. They said, this failed. This did not work. This did not make disciples. Because it appears as though some people are seeking hard after God, but the Bible says they're actually running from God. To seek with determination is the meaning here. And John 6, says, no one can come, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
Jesus would say in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And according here to verse 11, none seek after God. No one. Why? Because according to verse 12, we've all turned aside, right? Exodus 32.8, they've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them. Isaiah 53.6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned to his own way. Ecclesiastes 7.29, men have gone in search of many schemes. We've looked for God high and low, but anywhere we look for God apart from Christ is fruitless. And so instead of running to God, we're turning aside, running away from God. And he says here, all have become worthless. They're altogether unprofitable. A better rendering of unprofitable is just simply rancid or worthless. It's a word you would use to describe like um, rancid or sour milk. I don't know if any of you guys have ever uh, bought the night crawlers you get in the little plasticky cups, right? As long as, you, back in the day, you had to keep those cold. Now they have some genetically modified ones that you don't even have to keep cold. It's really weird. But we, we keep them in the fridge, you know, right next to the butter and the cheese where a normal fisherman would keep your worms. So Cindy would always have to be careful because one of the kids would want to go grab some dip. I wouldn't suggest you try worm dip. It's not great. So we'd keep worms. One day I did what a lot of guys will eventually do. I left them sitting out, and they actually got in the sun, the container, they didn't turn hard and crunchy like you see them on your sidewalk. They actually turned into a gelatinous goo. And the thing with that goo was, when I realized what I had done, and I, I shouldn't have even opened it, stupid, I opened the top, and the odor of that goo of worms, let me just tell you, that's the language Paul uses here to say we have become like that to our God. Some of you, maybe you've, you've done something like that. Maybe you left the, the worms in your truck. And, man, you just have to sell your truck. I mean, it's just, it's just bad, right? Because we're, we're, we're unprofitable, we're worthless, we're rancid, and no one does good. Look at that. Verse, uh, let's see, end of verse 12. There's none who does good. No, not one. You say, that can't be true. I know such and such. And they're not even a Christian, but they do good. Again, your standard is wrong. You're defining goodness with a very limited purview. What do you mean by that, Bobby? I mean this. Let's say we get a thousand people or more, thousands of people in here, and we give them all this food uh, two Saturdays from now, just under two weeks from now. We give all these people food, and we say, we want you to have the best Thanksgiving ever. We want you to go and enjoy this meat and these sides, and we love on them, and we give them treats in the line, and we give them a beautiful place and do great music, and we never tell them about Jesus. Would you say, church, that's good? No, it's not good because you've helped them temporarily. You've put a Band-Aid on their life. You've given them a meal when they need something to where they'll never hunger and thirst again. You follow what I'm saying? It's not good to just give them clothes and just give them food and don't give them Jesus because the help is temporary. And when you see people out there that you think, well, he's good and she's good, if they're not giving other people Jesus, then God says it's not good. So that's what he's getting to. There's not a righteous man on earth who does what's right and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. And after describing our sinful condition, Paul turns to our sinful conversation, Right? He says, look, what comes out of your mouth has its source in your heart. Jesus said, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And most of us would admit that we sin at times by what we say and how we say it. 
Have you ever looked back and wished you could take something back that really hurt somebody? I've done it more times than I ever want to remember. In Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, God mentions seven things that are abominations to him. Seven things he utterly abhors. Three of them have to do with what comes out of the mouth. Three of them have to do with how we speak. Where we served in our first church for 11 years, well, it was our second ministry, but my first senior pastor role, 11 years Love that place, Surrey County. Uh, it's where Andy Griffith was from. You know Mayberry's there and all that. And, and uh, we, I love the sheriff, Sheriff Atkinson. He was a great brother in Christ, is a great brother in Christ. But he went to the Methodist church. So, of course, that gave me stuff to poke him about. Why don't you come to the Baptist church and this and that? Not that that mattered, but I just, we, we picked and had a good time. And we were going to do something for our um, men and women that served in law enforcement and fire service and frontline EMS and all of that. And so, y'all remember the movie Courageous that the Kendrick brothers did? I remember that great film. Uh, we, were, we got permission to do a screening, a showing, and to do some food and stuff. And so, Sheriff uh, agreed, our sheriff agreed to come and emcee the event. So that morning, I was talking about it in the midst of the message. I just brought it up. Hey, invite all of those frontline folks in. We love them. We want, to, we want to appreciate them and show them this film. And I said, by the way, our sheriff, Sheriff Atkinson, he's going to be MC. I said, you know, he's a great guy, but he's going to be a lot better MC when he gets saved. And the whole room, it's like the oxygen got sucked out when I said he gets I was kidding, but immediately people started pointing. He was a Methodist. He was supposed to be in the Methodist church. But that morning, guess where he decided to worship? In his full sheriff garb, he stood up and he looked at me. And he had his gun and all that stuff. And I'm like, please don't shoot me. I want to see Jesus, but not today. Now, he laughed. I laughed. We joked. Of course, he knew I was kidding. I knew he was a sweet, dear brother in Christ, still is. But that evening when we had the event... Somebody from our church came and uh, brought this to me, and I've had it in my office ever since. Y'all read that and see what you think. Um, is that true or what? <laughs> Has anybody else ever felt that way? Pretty much every week you feel that way. And it's what you've said, or maybe it's how you've said it. The truth is, I was kidding around, and people knew it, and that was okay, but sometimes things spew out of our mouth, and, and maybe we weren't kidding around, and the truth is, our words may be corrupt, and our conversations may be depraved because we speak from a sinful heart. There's a corruptness in our speech. The throat is an open tomb. With tongues, we practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. The mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And our speech is affected by our sin nature. Now, I don't know. I've read different studies and different books and different things on the state of decay in our land. And I don't know exactly how accurate these stats are. They're pretty old now. But I had read from Kirby Anderson, a Christian professor and radio host, that the crime clock in America keeps ticking. One murder every 22 minutes, one rape every five minutes, one robbery or burglary, it, depending on the stat, every 49 seconds. They said even one burglary just to, just to steal every 10 seconds. That's crazy to me. But see, what the Bible says is their feet are swift to shed blood and destruction and misery are in their way. And Dr. Alan Barnett, a statistician with MIT, says that a child born in America today has a greater statistical probability of being murdered than, than an American soldier who left for World War II. 
And Dr. Barnett goes on to say, the most violent and dangerous place to be today in America is actually in a mother's womb with well over 60 million babies murdered since 1973. Now listen, I know that's not PC. I know that's not what the world wants to hear. I know people want to call murder a choice, but the reality is we have a depraved culture, a culture that does not understand and appreciate the sanctity, the sacredness of human life. And from head to foot, sin has permeated everything and everyone. And verse 17 even says that we even move away from peace rather than being peacemakers. And what I'm trying to get at, and I know it's uncomfortable at times, but according to the Bible, there are no good old boys. And then very briefly, the second point, according to the Bible, all are guilty before a holy God. Guilty. Why are we so messed up? Why are our conversations filled with decay and death at times? Why is our conduct so violent at times? And I mean us collectively. I'm not pointing to you specifically, but us people collectively. Well, let me answer that question by sharing one final illustration with you, if I may. Here's the problem right here. This is the problem. Now, what do you, some of y'all are immediately thinking one thing, right? You're thinking the garden, Adam and Eve, they took the apple. I don't know if it was an apple. It was a fruit of a tree, and it was the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where God said, if the, the day you eat of that fruit, you will indeed surely truly die. I've given you everything else, but don't touch that particular fruit. And it was in the eating of that fruit in the moment of disobedience when our first family thought that they could be like God because they listened to the lies of the enemy over the word of the Lord. When they messed up, the Bible says through federal headship, in Adam all die. Because all of us are now from the moment of conception conceived and then later born in sin. We sin because we're born sinners. You don't teach anyone how to do such a thing. But I'm not really talking about that apple. I'm actually talking about you have a delicious, beautiful apple like this, and you want to go take a bite. But when you go to take a bite, you discover <laughs> yes, I know it's a gummy worm. I'm trying to do this so y'all remember. You ever had an apple with a worm in it? Not pleasant. And I know what some of you are thinking. What does that have to do with this? Well, it has everything to do with this. Because some people mistakenly believe that that worm came from the outside in. And that's the way people live their life today, a, 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 a concept and a culture of victimization. I would be better if they would stop doing this to me or if they would give me this or entitlement. You owe me this. And this is the way our world works. And I wouldn't have it so bad and I wouldn't be such a sinner if it weren't for Sounds like Adam. God, that woman you gave me and Eve. God, that serpent over there, they made me do it. And God said, uh, 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 not so fast. Scientists have come to discover that the worm affects the apple not because he gets there from the outside in, but he starts from the inside out. You see, the fly lays the maggot, the, the little egg, inside when the apple is young and tender, maybe even as early as the apple blossom. And then as the apple forms around, you have a perfectly preserved and protected environment for that little egg to hatch out, if you will, a worm, a maggot to become a worm. That worm then has the perfect place to eat till his heart is content until all of a sudden, watch this, he goes, hello, here I am, and he's coming from the core. Sin is like that.
We are the way we are because at times the core is rotten. This is why you don't come to God by cleaning up the outside. You let God come in and begin to clean up the inside, and eventually when the core is clean, the outside is cleaned up. Do you see the difference? That's good. I don't care who you are, y'all. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to eat that. So this is the way sin works. Sin like a worm begins in our heart, and it wiggles its way out. So why are we so messed up? I think a lot of the answer is found. Look at it, verse 18. What does the Bible say? There is no fear of God in their eyes. We become complacent to God, and we take sin too lightly because we take God too lightly. It could be paraphrased. They care nothing about God or what he thinks of them. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges writes, when we sin, we're in effect treating God and his word with disdain or contempt. I would say it like this. Every sin has its roots in our rejection of God and refusal to revere him. And I'm convinced, convinced the best way to overcome the sin that so easily ensnares us is to cultivate a healthy, right fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And I want to get practical here. If you'll keep God before your eyes and heart and fear Him, reverence Him, be in awe of Him, be in wonder of Him, then God gets big and sin gets small. Like David who prayed in Psalm 86, 11, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Undivided. I find myself divided too often. And according to the word of God, all of us are totally depraved, not just deprived. Some of you are going to want to say to me, you, 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 you don't know my story. You don't know what they did or they did. And you're going to say that you are the way you are because of the outside influences. I'm not saying those things are not important and they're not part of your story. I'm saying it's not what makes you a sinner separated from God. I'm saying that you're a sinner separated from God because you were born that way. All of us are in that boat. Folks, according to the word of God, we don't just need more education or more money or more stuff, and we cannot simply blame our environment or our background. We've all blown it. We're all busted. Someone once said, if sin were blue, I'd be blue all over. In fact, I would argue if sin were blue, we'd all be running around here like a bunch of Smurfs this morning, because all of us, all of us are sinners. We all sin. And after spelling out the indictment, Paul makes his closing argument to show how condemned we are. Real quick, these final three truths, let me summarize. All will be silenced before God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. We're all under God's law, whether we know it or not. Every mouth will be stopped. All are silenced. We come face to face with the mirror of God's word and see the scars of our sin and we're silenced. The word means to stop murmuring. Salvation comes only to those who are silenced by their sinfulness. You will not stand before God one day and say, but, 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 but God, didn't you see what they did? And, but, but, but God, didn't you see how they responded to me? You cannot get away with that. You will be silenced before a holy God. And until you are silenced, salvation cannot come. Hell will be filled with people who couldn't stop talking and stop blaming others. You don't need, you don't know that you need a savior until you understand that you're a sinner. 
The second truth we see here is all are be accountable to God. It says at the second half of verse 9 that every mouth will be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. But the legal term actually from the Greek is more like accountable or liable. In other words, i got to pay the price for what's happened or i got to trust that Jesus has paid the price for me. I'll stand my, on my own and my works will not add up and I will fail or I'll stand robed in the righteousness of Christ and God will look at me through the lens of Jesus and see that all my sin, past, present, and future is paid in full and I will have entry into the presence of God forever because Christ paid the price. That is the gospel. And are you ready to meet your maker? Are you really ready? Because the Bible says that we're all lawbreakers. In fact, the law of God helps us see that none of us will make it. We're all lawbreakers. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For, the law, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. J.B. Phelps renders, I'm sorry, Phillips renders verse 20 like this. It's the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. It's a misunderstanding to think that God gave us the law to somehow keep a perfect standard, to somehow work us up to be right with him. It's a misunderstanding. In fact, can I, let me prove it as we bring the train into the station here. Can I, li, listen, nobody's paying attention out there. I just got to ask you all a question. They were very honest in the first service. I just want to ask you a question. My driver's in the room. Have you, let's just say in the last week, just maybe in the last week, not your whole life, but in the last week, have you possibly gone over the speed limit even by a smidgen? The rest of you that are drivers without your hand up are lying through your teeth. Have we broken the law? Just Ted's not taking your photo. Don't worry about it. Have you gone over? A little, in fact, if you didn't go over, would they not blow your doors off on Pellissippi or 40? They would kill you if you didn't go over the speed limit. You can't even keep, me too, we can't even keep man's laws. Some of the simplest ones, go this fast and no more. I read an article two days ago that a guy was stopped for going five under. He said, what am I doing wrong? The officer said, you were going too slow. He said, what, what? we can't keep man's law. Do we really think we can keep God's law? All of us have broken God's law. All of us have stumbled and fallen in many ways. All of us are in the same boat. doesn't matter if you're the preacher, you're sitting on the pew. We're all in this together. Romans 7, 7 says, Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. Galatians 2, 16 says, A man's not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. And we put our faith in Christ and we're justified. But not by observing the law. H have you ever been caught? You've been going not just five over or ten, but you were speeding, man. You ever been caught? And they come up to your window, and you just say, I'm sorry. You got me. You don't make excuses. You got me. I was breaking the law. I did it. And have you ever had them say, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to just give you a warning today. How does that make you feel? You're grateful, right? I mean, I wouldn't know. I've never broken the law. But I'm just saying, y'all, heathens. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Lord, you know. Praise your name. So, y'all, you feel grateful, right? That's a good officer. I appreciate him or her. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me another chance. God has done that eternally. You've broken his law. You're busted. You're guilty. You deserve death and hell and separation. And God said, if you'll come to Jesus, I'll wipe it off the books. 
You won't even get any points on your insurance, man. We need an extreme makeover, y'all. Not the early season, the later season, where they tore the whole thing down and started over. We're deeply depraved and hopelessly lost, but, and this is why he came today, but we're incredibly loved. Incredibly loved. This is the good news part. The bad news makes the good news so much sweeter. According to the Bible, there are no good old boys, and according to the Bible, all are guilty before a holy God. And I'll close with this story. R.C. Buckner, a big, bold Baptist pastor, lived about, it was over 100 years ago in Texas. This big, burly, imposing figure had a very tender heart for children. He started Buckner's Children's Home for orphans all over the state. The children affectionately called him Papa Buckner. They'd run up to Papa Buckner every time he'd come visit, and he'd pick each one of them up, and he'd love on them and tell them how much they were loved and appreciated. And one day he was visiting one of the homes and hugging all the children gathered around him, and he noticed a new little girl standing over in the corner, face to the wall. He discovered that little Mary had been seriously burned in an accident. In fact, she was the sole survivor of a, of a, house, sole survivor of a house fire that killed her entire family, left her badly scarred. He went over, and while she was still facing the wall, he said, Sweetheart, don't you want Papa Buckner to give you a hug? Little Mary snarled back and said, No, I'm too ugly. And Papa Buckner knelt down. He picked that little girl up in his big arms, and he turned her face gently toward his face. And he placed a very tender kiss right on one of the scarred portions of her burned little face. And after he kissed her, he said, sweetheart, you're beautiful to me, and you're beautiful to God. My fellow sinner, the holy and awesome God of the universe, there that first Christmas, been down. And through Calvary, he would come to kiss the scars of our sin in sending his only begotten son to be savior of the world. And in spite of our hideous deformities and unholy depravity, he wraps his arms around us and he turns our face toward his by faith and he kisses the scars of our sin and he said, I don't care what they say about you, you're my child and to me you are beautiful. And that's the good news of the gospel today. But you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. But you don't know what they've done to me. I don't need to know. I know what they did to Jesus. And I know how he responded. And I know that he's made a way. Because the Bible tells me that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, Bobby and Cindy and you and you and you out there, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, listen. We are all in the same boat today, and the name of that boat is Titanic. If you think you can get there in your goodness, you will fail. But if you will come to God in faith and say, I trust you and the finished work of Jesus, he will lift you up, he will kiss all that deformity, and he will make you his child. And I love God. And I love you enough to tell you, according to his standard, there are no good old boys. Stand with me this morning.
It's not designed to make you mad. You say, well, what is it designed to make me feel bad? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, not only should you feel bad, you should be terrified. I'm just saying, be straight with you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are facing an eternity separated from God in agony. I can't even describe to you how horrible it's going to be. The football player, it was going 150-some, slowed down to 120-some, hit the young lady in the RAV4. In, immediately it burst into flames. She and her dog were inside. And bystanders said all they heard were the screams to get out. And as much as that hurt my heart and as much as I hope he is charged to the fullest extent of the law and justice is served for this young lady and her family, let me tell you what I thought when I first heard that tale. That's a true story. This NFL player, young guy, threw it all away. When I first read the article, I thought, oh God, should we not care about those in torment of flame forever? Should we not care? Too much of what we're hearing today that is called preaching is feel better, do better. But what we need to hear is surrender. Surrender. Come to God. He's the only one that can pull you from the flame. Come to God. Through Christ, say yes. I surrender. And he'll put you on a new path from beggar to royalty. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would move some who are far from you to turn to you and trust you as their Lord and their Savior. And I pray today for those of us who know you that we would come with grateful hearts, so overwhelmed at your goodness when we consider just how bad it was. Not bad relative to other people necessarily, but we are so bad in light of your holiness because you are so good. My prayer today is that lost people would be saved and saved people would grow deeper. And those who are growing deeper and maturing would be on fire to go out there and tell folks, love them enough to share the truth in word and deed. May Grace Baptist Church be a lighthouse, a lighthouse where ships will keep from wrecking and ultimately sinking, a lighthouse to show people the way, a lighthouse that love people enough not only to feed the belly but feed the soul if we give them what they need for the body but not for the soul. It's not very good. So let us be good as you count goodness. You are our divine plumb line. Move us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.